welcome to another episode of the Criterion Collectors. I'm your co-host, Rosalie Lewis, alongside my co-host... Tim Rosenberger. And today, originally, we had planned on highlighting some films around themes of LGBTQ. However, unfortunately, we weren't able to get a guest in time to record that episode for Pride Month. So expect that to come later on whenever we're able to get a guest host scheduled. But in the meantime, we decided to go back to some familiar territory for us. And that is the movies that initially got us into being Criterion Collectors, the first movie that each of us bought that was part of the Criterion Collection. So that actually makes for a very interesting mashup because my choice is Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and Tim's choice is Modern Times. You may think those films are very different, but I promise we'll find a way to make connections between them. <laughs> so uh, this should be interesting. first movie we're going to talk about is Modern Times. It came out in 1936. Um, it's a film by silent comedian Charlie Chaplin. It was really his last real foray into silent cinema. He made this well into the talking era, and he originally was going to make it, actually make it a full talkie. He wrote a whole dialogue script with it, being a talkie, and he even filmed, I think, at least a scene with it being a talkie, but he uh, decided to, ch he changed his mind at the last second and um, made it kind of a partial talkie. It has synchronized soundtrack in it, like his previous film, 1931 film, City Lights, and it has sound effects, plenty of sound effects in it, and it does have some dialogue in it. Most of the dialogue, except for maybe two or three cases, is from machines. Good morning, my friends. This record comes to you through the Sales Talk Transcription Company, Incorporated. Your speaker, the mechanical salesman. Or a video screen. Section 5, speed her up, fall 1. A character might talk through a video screen, but then when you see that per character in person, you're still seeing title cards and stuff like that. So most of the film still functions like it's a silent film, but there is some talky film elements in it. So it kind of bridges the gap there. It is his last film with the Little Tramp character. Then his next film, 1940s, The Great Dictator, has a character sort of like the Tramp, but it's not quite that, uh, the Little Tramp, and he didn't count that as a Tramp film. So this is the Tramp's last appearance in a film. It's about the Tramp who's called a fa the factory worker in this film, who works at a factory making God knows what. And he is working on an assembly line with a bunch of other workers, and uh, he has a nervous break breakdown and ends up in a hospital and unemployed because the factory kind of breaks the factory in his uh, breakdown and uh, he starts wandering the streets trying to find work he gets arrested he runs into a young girl whose father recently was murdered she's played by his third wife Paulette Goddard Goddard and uh, eventually kind of turns into him and her her character being called I think it's pronounced gammon or gammon them trying to survive and have a home and little tramps character has various jobs that he does like working at a department store and uh, various other things and that's the gist of it it's a pretty simple story and um, it talks a lot about well the modern times about assembly lines about mo uh, then modern technology and somewhat futuristic -y type technology from the point of view of 1936 before we get into our thoughts about the film a little um 
disclaimer that I should probably mention. Um, in researching my uh, list of uh, my early Criterion buys, I had a discovery that Modern Times was not actually my first Criterion pick. It was my first Blu-ray Criterion purchase, but it was not my first Criterion film. My first Criterion film was actually Guillermo del Toro's, I think it's 1993 film, uh, Kronos. We decided not to do that film with Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas for a couple reasons. One, we wanted to review that with, talk about that with Guillermo del Toro's other two Spanish-language films that Criterion has released. And uh, we just liked the combination of Modern Times and Fear and Loathing more. So it's a bit of a cheat, but it's still a very early buy. But anyway... I think Modern Times is Criterion's first Chaplin film that they released, which I kind of an odd choice for it to be their first one. But, but I bought it just because I was a big Chaplin fan, and I don't know if I even owned it before that, but I was interested in seeing it and uh, to see it beautified and all that stuff. So I bought it, and one thing I've noticed rewatching it because I rewatched it the other day um, for the first time in quite a few years is that I think it's really his. While he's talking about serious subjects like assembly lines and overwork and maybe institutionalizing of prisoners and all this other stuff, it's a pretty light. It probably except for maybe his last two films, which I haven't seen, *Akin New York* and *Countess from Hong Kong*. It's probably his lightest films, the feature films that he did. There is drama in it, but not it's not terribly heavy-handed in it. So it, I think out of all of his feature films, this is the kind of lightest one to go into. And I found that it's kind of a nice change of pace for Chaplin because usually his films are mixed with feature films are mixed with. A balance of really funny comedy, but then also pretty, in a good way, pretty, you know, sad, some pretty sad material too, and some a lot of pathos. So this having less of it made it for a nice kind of lighter, fun uh, watch. But um, had you had you watched this before? You watched it to prepare for this? Yeah, I watched this. I believe this was one of the early Chaplin films I saw. The first Chaplin I saw was City Lights, mm-hmm. and I do really have a special place in my heart for that one. But Modern Times feels, I mean, like its title, very modern. From the technology that's used to shoot it to the combination of the silent aesthetic, but using some of those talky elements, um, especially the musical sequences where he sings at the end. And um, I did, I really liked it. I think my favorite Chaplin is still Gold Rush. Yeah. Um, to me, the slapstick combined with like the complete desperation of that character is just perfect. And I also love uh, A Dog's Life, which is one of his shorter films. but. This is really a great balance, especially if you're getting into silent film or getting into Chaplin. It's a great introduction because if a two-hour silent film intimidates you, this would be a great choice instead, I think, because it's not fully silent. It's not Mm -hmm. fully two hours. It's only 87 minutes, and it'll give you a really good taste of what Chaplin's work is like. So if you're looking to dive into Chaplin, this is a good entry point. So did you like then the combination of, did you think that kind of worked well with it? Then if he had done um, a full talkie, do you prefer his kind of mixture of the two elements to not just maybe, and like you say, kind of helps make it easier for people who are getting into silent film, but also he's using it as kind of a tool for storytelling. Do you like his usage of sound and dialogue? I do. Actually, the first time I watched it, I didn't realize that it was going to have that much sound. And so I was mm-hmm. like, wait, what? what's going on? Like, there's sound in a, a silent film. So it took me by surprise in a good way. But I really like it because the little bits of sound that you do get kind of underscore certain key moments in the movie. And I still like that there's inner titles, but it feels a little bit more relatable.
was interesting watching this because it takes on a lot of heavy social issues. And I was thinking, like, if this was a Ken Loach film, I would be crying right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. But um, in the Chaplin way of doing things, it's both extremely entertaining and also makes you think um, about, you know, what the American dream had become at that time. And, you know, the various things they were dealing with with the Great Depression. And, mm. you know, it's a very, like progressive film in that in that way i think i think it's interesting to think about because i think we tend to think of the great depression more as the early 30s and stuff so i think sometimes we have to remind ourselves that it's still going on in 1936 or 35 when he right. filmed it so that they're still struggling with that while at the same time dealing with technology that's supposed to you know improve our lives and let us kind of live more at ease but is instead stealing jobs from people and stuff because there's less you know, you don't need as many workers and stuff and the kind of dehumanizing of workers and treating them more just, well, I think at, at the beginning of the film, they, they, he makes a not so subtle allusion to them just being sheep that are being used and stuff. So I know one complaint I think this film has had is that some people think it's not terribly cohesive in that you could almost break down certain parts of the film into short films because they kind of break into nice little blocks like him at the factory, him at the department store, and blah, blah, blah. So did you have an issue with that when you were watching it? Or is that, I mean, did you even, is that even something that you noticed that's kind of more pieces put together into a feature film? Yeah, it is. It's a lot of vignettes, but they all tie together really well. And you know, if you think about this, this was probably before like serialized television was around, right? And so I think in some ways, like films weren't really serialized either. So having it broken up into all those short pieces maybe makes it a little more digestible and a little more palatable. So if you don't relate to one of the shorts, maybe you relate to one of the others. If you don't relate to the fact that life in a factory really sucks, then maybe <laughs> you'll realize like, oh, maybe being in jail during that time was better because at least you got to eat or yeah. maybe you'll be able to relate to a house that's falling down you know each little episode gives you something to hold on to or relate to and i liked that and then you sort of see the progression too from the beginning to the end and they're not substantially better off in a financial position but they're still happier even though like their financial circumstances haven't changed all that much and i think that was kind of powerful too because in most like feature-length films you expect the arc to be we meet people in one place and they end up in a different place. Mm. And I think these guys ended up in a slightly different place, but mainly just because they're together. Yeah, and they have a better, maybe better point of view of how to be happy. Maybe what doesn't make you happy. I mean, yeah, they're still probably going to try to find work and, you know, try to support themselves that way, but maybe have a different point of view of the American dream and maybe not pursue those stuff. Makes their lives miserable, like his factory mm -hmm. job and stuff. <laughs> Did you have any favorite comedic scenes in this movie? There's a lot to choose from. It's a small thing. It's not really, it's, it really is a, just a moment. But when he's having his breakdown and he's running amok around the factory, he runs, I think he runs out of the factory briefly and then he runs back in so that he, in, in his frenzy, he can clock out of work. And then he goes back to going back to, I just thought that was a nice little touch that he's still yeah. going about his, his Worried routine. about clocking in and out. Yeah, his routine <laughs> and stuff yeah. is funny. When he is in prison and he is thwarting a, oh, almost accidentally thwarting a um, jailbreak. Yes. That's that's pretty funny. I don't know, and there's a lot of bits. I think the thing about Chaplin is there's a lot of, I think his little touches are almost the funniest things in his movies. 
more than whole scenes. Like in the, like for his first feature film, The Kid, there's a moment when he first finds the kid as a baby, and he's just kind of sitting down on the street, and he kind of eyes a sewer, like a sewer grate, and he opens it briefly and looks down, and look then looks at the mm-hmm. kid. And then he, you see him think for a second, and then he decides not to, and then he closes the grate again. You know, just little moments like that, I think, are sometimes the funniest parts of his films. So it's kind of hard to point out a whole scene. Besides, whole scenes are more kind of just impressive, like um, when he's in the department store, at one point he's doing this whole kind of dance on roller skates and stuff, where he almost keeps falling down, not a pit, but this the thing that goes down further into the department store, he almost keeps falling down this hole because he's blindfolded and stuff. That's kind of more just kind of nice to watch and beautiful to watch and stuff than it is... I mean, it's sort of funny, but it's more, I think, just nice and stuff. So, yeah, it's more little moments that I think I like. I think for me the most impressive like set piece of this one is the feeding machine, which isn't even entirely Chaplin, but in the factory, this is very early, you know, these people come in to propose this great new efficient system for the boss that his workers won't even have to stop working to be fed. And there's this machine that, you know, tilts the soup up and they emphasize they won't even have to blow on it with their own mouths because there's some sort of fan that's, you know, cooling the soup and then you know, there's little levers that are pushing the food into these guys' mouths. And then when they demonstrate it, of course, it all goes terribly, terribly wrong. And Chaplin ends up covered in food and has this machine that's supposed to wipe his mouth, just like hitting him over and over in the face. And so, you know, those moments of physical comedy where he's not necessarily doing a thing, but having a thing done to him, he just reacts so well to those yeah. that um, I think that's another another piece of the Chaplin genius. Um, I think um, I could be wrong about this, but some when you were mentioning that, I had a vague memory. I think Chaplin was working uh, when you can't see his hands, when you're just seeing his face. I think he was actually working the, the food machine. Like he's actually oh, hitting probably. himself. Okay. I think he, he might be. I might be wrong about that, but I think parts of it, like he's hitting himself in the face with the sponge mm-hmm. thing. I could be wrong about that, but somehow I remember that, and that kind of fits with his control freak nature. It does. He would do that, so <laughs> I think that might be right. Another scene that I enjoyed, and you sort of referenced it, it's one of the prison scenes, but they're looking for somebody who has nose powder, which I'm only assuming must be cocaine. And uh, it's not Chaplin's character, but he inadvertently gets high because another guy stashes it in the salt shaker. And that scene is hilarious as well. Just seeing him like running around in circles and just kind of going crazy. And nobody else seems to notice, even though he's a nonconformist. I feel like the nonconformist aspect of Chaplin comes through in each of these sort of little vignettes where he's not doing the expected thing at the factory. He's kind of going crazy. He gets caught in the gears and, you know, he inadvertently sort of starts like a, a riot against the cops at one point and all these other things happen. Um, where he's just not doing what society expects, and that leads to mayhem and chaos, and I love that. You mentioned it. Um, there's actually a lot, not one, well, not a lot, but there's there's some surprising bits of humor that people might not expect from a film from 1936. There's drug humor, there's flatulence or humor, yep. and kind of bodily stuff humor and just stuff that people might not expect from that. But I mean, it still works within the that uh, kind of 1936 framework but it is kind of interesting because i think we usually think of drug films as being at least you know around cheech and chong era time and then right moving forward yeah yeah and then and then instead of you know in the mid 30s so it's kind of nice to see their point of view on that sort of thing and kind of just i don't know if many people would do that type of stuff in 1936 especially you know when the code is still pretty strong and stuff so to have that is kind of 
um, interesting, I think, very Chaplin-like to do something that kind of against the uh, norm. But, uh, yeah, I, I kind of like that stuff. Were you surprised at all to see that type of humor in the film? I was, yeah, especially the drug references, because obviously we know that drugs aren't, like, new to the U.S. or to the world. they you know, been around even in the 1800s, but to see it referenced on film in that era was surprising. I've seen a lot of other movies from the 30s, and I really don't remember any cocaine references in them, so especially not comedic. So that was surprising to me. And I enjoyed a little bit of the sort of childish humor. I liked some of the double entendres and the there's a scene where he's like using his factory, whatever it is that he uses on his assembly line to like mm-hmm. grab at a lady. And so, yeah, it's funny. Like it, it definitely adds a layer of humor beyond the, the physical slapstick stuff that makes it really fun. What do you think of uh, Paulette Goddard as his kind of uh, comedic partner in the film? Oh, I think she's fantastic. I wanted her to be in the movie even more. Um, I she... love her so, so much. Yeah, she's not I... in the film tons and tons, but... She's not, but she's really great. And um, I know he wasn't always the nicest to the ladies in real life, but yeah. she's so wonderful in this film. Just her smile lights up the entire screen, and she's so charismatic, and she's down for whatever stunts she does. Like, she's on skates at one point, too, and I just... I really enjoyed the fact that she seemed very uh, gung-ho about whatever was asked of her to do. Yeah, I really loved her. I would have liked to see even more. Yeah, she's good in the film. Again, I like to have seen her maybe showcased more and get some more of the, maybe shared some of the better comedic moments with her. I think it would have been nice. I mean, she's very talented and somebody who I think should get more attention in film history. the music i think that final song and dance scene is just phenomenal it's such a a great example of how chaplin not only can do you know film directing and obviously put these crazy sets together and these elaborate choreographies but you know he's very talented as, as a musician as a singer like he's not a great dude in real life but he was really talented and um that final scene where he just wins everybody over at that restaurant with his song and dance number is fantastic you could have that just as like a short film in itself and everybody would still love it yeah and it should be mentioned that uh the the, the song she's referring to it is his well really the chap uh, the uh, the tramp's only dialogue he ever has in any film that chaplin does and I think one of the reasons he didn't want to make it a talkie, a full talkie, is because he was always resistant to make the tramp talk because he knew then the tramp would lose his universal appeal because then he's speaking in a specific language. So in order to avoid that, I think he wanted to have him do a song, but he didn't want to have him be doing songs in English or any language. So he does, they have a, there's a reason in the plot for why this happens, but he does a gibber, a song in gibberish. So he's singing, but he's not really singing any words. But you kind of can follow the story he's telling anyway. So 
So he has the Tramps talk, but he keeps that universal appeal forever and always. So I like that he did that, um, and he was able to find a way to kind of make both people happy. Have the Tramp talk, but not have him talk was kind of nice. And it's only that one time. He has that one song and dance, and that's it. He never, and it's only in that song he doesn't actually speak. And again, it's one of the few, I think it's one of the only two or three times when you actually hear a human voice that's not technology in the film but no i like that a lot i really love that song it's kind of a, it's catchy in its own way even though you can't you know again it's gibberish lyrics and uh, yeah i really love that song yeah it showcases chaplin's song and dance abilities which probably he hadn't used in that really in that sense since he was probably a child performing with his mother so where does this fall in your ranking of the chaplin films that you've seen is this your favorite is it your top five? Uh, the ones I've seen, because I've only seen out of his talkies, I own Limelight, but haven't watched it yet. I've watched Great Dictator, so I can't really talk about those. But talking about his, in terms of his silence f- feature films, which I've seen all of except for The Circus and The Pilgrim, because like, that counts, even though nobody ever really counts it. In terms of the films he starred and not counting A Woman in Paris and stuff. Um, it probably features maybe in the middle or a little bit past the middle um i probably will always love the kid the most and then gold rush i like a lot but i would place it above city lights because i watched city lights for the first time just a few weeks ago and i actually wasn't a big fan of that film so i would place it above that and actually i probably would place it in a way over great dictator in a way that great dictator is better but it's a very different film it's much more dramatic talking a much more serious subject even though it's ridiculing it at the same time but yeah in the middle or maybe a little bit past the middle for me i think it's a good film but he's done funnier films and films that again are more co- cohesive and maybe hit you more but again it's a nice light film to watch of his i think it's good why does it kind of fall for you i would say it's probably third or fourth for me so like i said gold rush is probably my favorite i think city lights is number two for me. Like I said, that was one of the earliest ones that I saw and I absolutely loved it. I know some people don't like how sentimental it is, but I don't mind that at all. And I really do love modern times for all the crazy technology that goes into it and the commentary on society. So I think that would be my top three would be Gold Rush, City Lights and Modern Times. Before we wrap up, I do want to have a little kind of uh, disclaimer. Like we said, I know, especially in these times, it's important to mention that yes, Chaplin was a very gifted uh, comedian, filmmaker, storyteller, talented in many different ways. I don't want anybody to think we're not endorsing his personal life <laughs> in any way. He had a lot of, <laughs> yeah, he had a lot of very uncomfortable uh, aspects of his personal life. Don't think we're endorsing that at all. Obviously, we're not. But I think it's important to mention that aspect of Chaplin. I don't want to act like we're sanctifying him or whatever. first movie I bought as part of the Criterion Collection was Terry Gilliam's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which came out in 1998, starring Johnny Depp and Benicio Del Toro, along with a lot of cameos that I'll talk about. Hmm. And it's based on the Hunter S. Thompson book of the same name. I wouldn't call it 
a novel. I wouldn't call it an autobiographical book. It's just one of those you got to read it to understand. But essentially, the story such that it is, and very much out of chronological order with an unreliable narrator, is about Raul Duke, who's played by Johnny Depp and is basically a Hunter S. Thompson surrogate, who is a journalist of a sort that is assigned to cover a race in Las Vegas of a bunch of motorcycles. It's called the Mint 400. And so he goes there with his supposedly attorney, questionable how reliable that guy's advice is, played by Benicio Del Toro. And uh, the two of them end up in Las Vegas with a whole lot of drugs, a whole lot of alcohol. We had two bags of grass, 75 pellets of mescaline, five sheets of high-powered blotter acid, a salt shaker half full of cocaine, a whole galaxy of multicolored uppers, downers, screamers, laughers, also a quarter tequila, quarter rum, case of beer, pint of raw ether, and two dozen amyls. Not that we needed all that for the trip, but once you get locked into a serious drug collection, the tendency is to push it as far as you can. And they get into all kinds of scrapes together, including defrauding several hotels and having many questionable encounters. The movie is insane. And I remember the reason that I watched it is, and I was probably, I don't know, uh, 19 at the time, as my cousin and I had gone through this real Johnny Depp obsession and we were going to our local video store and renting every Johnny Depp movie we could find. And so we went from things like Benny and June and Edward Scissorhands to um, Fear and Living in Las Vegas, which is a very different movie for him. And probably one of the defining movies of Johnny Depp's career. He was friends with Hunter S. Thompson and emulated him um, to a great degree. In fact, Thompson insisted that he be cast in this movie. And Depp also borrowed a lot of pieces of clothing and various other things that he used in the movie, sort of channeling that Hunter S. Thompson sort of druggy, psychedelic era. This is definitely one of those movies where perhaps if you have inhaled substances or done some sort of substances, it might bring even more out. I, at the time, had never even so much as uh, drank alcohol or (laughs) smoked marijuana. So for me, it was definitely a trip that I was not expecting, but I was instantly hooked. It's just completely gonzo. And, you know, from the beginning of the movie where they're talking about this is bat country and they're driving through the desert and you don't see a bat in sight. Suddenly there was a terrible roar all around us and the sky was full of what looked like huge bats all swooping and screeching and diving around the car. And a voice was screaming, holy Jesus, what are these goddamn animals? To, you know, the the crazy encounters in the hotel room with various wait staff and seeing people as lizards and the floor as alternatively uh, a swamp or you know things moving around on the carpet it's really insane and i can only imagine is probably what it's like to be doing acid and whatever other things that they had going on so that was my initial introduction i found it so strange and so interesting that i had to track it down for myself and i was instantly intrigued by the cover on the criterion collection which is done by ralph steadman who is an artist that was also friends with Hunter S. Thompson. And so I picked it up. Like, sight unseen, I didn't know what the Criterion Collection was. I just wanted more of this crazy movie. And uh, it definitely rewarded me because there's a ton of great extras on it. So what was your encounter with this movie? Was this uh, a movie that you saw a long time ago or more recently? I had known about it for a long time, but I actually watched it for the first time preparing for this. So um, it was my first exposure to it. And um, I was hesitant going into it because I'm not a 
big fan of weird movies. I don't really get into them usually. But this film really worked for me. Really, I really liked it. I think part of the reason it, this one works for me, as opposed to other films that are really strange, is that it helps, I think, that it's not a dramatic weird movie. I mean, there are some bits of sort of drama in it, uh, but it's mostly a dark comedy. And I think mm-hmm. having it be a dark comedy it makes it so just ridiculous that I can kind of just enjoy the insanity of it instead of being kind of just weirded out by it and stuff. The weirdness works for the type of humor that they're doing. So um, I think that's why it works for me as opposed to other films, even some other Gilliam films that have dramatic bits of weirdness into it that are just strange, not terribly appealing for me. But yeah, no, I think this really geared meshed with me. I think a lot of it is very based on actual experiences and apparently the movie is very faithful to the book and to the point where it's taking a lot of narration and a lot of dialogue i think most of the dialogue from the movie is actually from the book but yeah it's just kind of an interesting look into because he talks about they talk about kind of the civil you know the rights movements and Mm -hmm. protests going on going on in the 60s and kind of the drug culture and what it meant and what it turned out to be so there's some deeper messages there too that i think are nice but it's couched in this this kind of comedic insanity that's strangely enjoyable even though these two guys are being very self-destructive it was interesting re-watching the movie in light of everything that's been going on in the last month or so here because i feel like the 60s were the last time we saw this many people be sort of politically awakened or politically active with masses of people you know protesting and things like that and this movie has a good deal of sort of flashbacks to black and white scenes, I'm sure recreated, but of, you know, people protesting in the streets against Vietnam or protesting the draft or protesting, you know, civil rights or, you know, saying free love and things like that. And there's actually quite a good deal of commentary, like you said, lifted from the book directly where, you know, Johnny Depp as as Raul Duke slash Hunter S. Thompson is doing this voiceover about, you know, what that generation thought that they were accomplishing and you know at the time they felt like anything was possible and just by existing basically they felt like they were changing the world and by the time we get to this drug-addled Vegas hotel room where he's reflecting on it all you know this is several years later he's realizing that that wave has crested and there's this great monologue in the center of the movie it's one of my favorite scenes where he talks about San Francisco in the middle 60s was a very special time and place to be a part of there was madness in any direction, at any hour. You could strike sparks anywhere. There was a fantastic universal sense that whatever we were doing was right, that we were winning. And that, I think, was the handle. That sense of inevitable victory over the forces of old and evil. Not in any mean or military sense. We didn't need that. Our energy would simply prevail. We had all the momentum. We were riding the crest of a high and beautiful wave. So now, less than five years later, You can go up on a steep hill in Las Vegas and look west. And with the right kind of eyes, you can almost see the high water mark. That place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. He's almost having these, I don't know that regret is the right word, but certainly um, second thoughts about what the movement really accomplished or where all the people that thought they were doing such great things have landed and, you know, how they've almost become more like these self-centered people who are just doing self-destructive things rather than actually pushing that movement forward. So maybe I'm reading into it more than really is there because of the moment we're in, but 
it was a really good insight for me to think about, you know, what our next steps are as a country and how we can avoid repeating that same thing where you feel like you're making all this forward momentum and then you end up getting just caught in this, you know, sort of self-destructive loop. But yeah, it's a deeper movie than it might seem on the surface because on the surface it's like Johnny Depp being a weirdo and Benicio Del Toro being an even bigger weirdo. And it's it's a lot more than that. And there's, like I said, some really beautiful voiceover and narration in this movie that is taken from Hunter S. Thompson, who I love. So, and that's, this movie is the reason why, but I went on to read Hell's Angels and some of his other works as well. And, you know, he's a great writer that really encapsulated the, those decades very well. This was also the first Terry Gilliam movie I ever watched. Um, Like I said, I was 19 at the time, so I wasn't really paying a lot of attention to movie directors at that point. I knew who Tim Burton was, but, you know, Mm -hmm. it was (laughs) one of those things where I was a little late to the party on some of the more important, quote unquote, directors. And, uh, you know, now that I've seen things like Brazil, I understand that Gilliam definitely had a knack for these political commentaries that were couched in kind of bizarre visuals and strange situations and in some ways i think that that i'm not really forcing it i think there really is a connection between terry gilliam and his filmmaking style and charlie chaplin because they both use these kind of crazy situations in movies Mm -hmm. chaplin obviously to a, a less surreal extent but to to make a bigger point and to make these political commentaries so i think you could certainly draw a line between gilliam and chaplin on that level and then of course there's the little stuff like the fact that there is a drug reference in modern times, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a lot of drug references in this movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. But also, the, the character of Raoul Duke is sort of mourning the what people thought the American dream was going to be to what it actually is. And I think Chaplin was doing a lot of the same thing in modern times. Mm-hmm. You know, people really striving to achieve something, whether that's through, like, working at a factory or, you know, settling down with the love of your life in a beautiful house or all these things. And it's not quite what he had hoped. And I think the same thing is what Roald Duke is sort of meditating on in certain parts of this movie. So those parallels are definitely there. And uh, Depp is, well, was, and I think still is a big Chaplin fan. So, and he's oh, made yeah. ref- And in Benny and June, if you watch that, there's uh, obvious references and inspirations. From, from other things, yeah. Yeah, so uh, there's that too. But no, yeah, I agree. That's a good point. They do are both using comedic elements to talk about social and political issues. And both of them, in terms of their personal lives, you know, had some success with some of those political social messages, especially earlier in their careers, and then later in their careers, um, maybe not so much. I mean, Chaplin was yeah. not in great favor with the United States in terms of his political views and stuff near the end. And uh, Gilliam obviously clashes a lot with everybody, so uh, he has had some stuff people agree with, and then some stuff people um, just shake their heads and walk away kind of sad at his point of views. But, I mean, to go even further with similarities, they're both kind of self-exiled themselves from from the United States. Gilliam, who's no longer a citizen, can visit a certain amount of time of the year. And then uh, Chaplin, who first was not allowed back in the United States and then just decided to stay away. You know, there are some similarities that people might not realize about them and their lives and their careers and stuff. But still a very odd uh, double feature that we have. <laughs> yeah. From very different time periods of filmmaking. Not two movies that I would have thought of as a double feature, but they kind of work. So, yeah. yeah. It was interesting, too, like looking into some of the production of um, Fear and Loathing and the difficulties of getting it made. This is a movie that had they've been trying to get made since the 70s, and a lot of people felt like the book was unfilmable, which I can certainly see why they would feel that way. But apparently Jack Nicholson, who we talked about on a previous podcast, 
was originally one of the people they thought of for Raul Duke. With uh, um, Marlon Brando, I think. Marlon Brando was another one, yep. With, um, um, what, and... I think Marlon Brando might have been the Benicio Del Toro character. I think they were going to be paired yeah. together. I could have seen that. Um, it would have been an interesting take on it. And then, you know, they throughout the 80s tried to get it made at different times, and one of the people that is involved with the final making of it is Alex Cox, who made Repo Man, along with a number of other sort of interesting, lesser-known projects. Uh, Straight to Hell would be one of them. Um, and Alex Cox is another one where he's a very, like, outside of the, the establishment kind of filmmakers, and he he did a treatment of this movie that wasn't well-liked by Thompson, from what I understand. So mm-hmm. his name is still on it, but they changed a lot of what was there. But again, it's these people that are just outside of maybe the Hollywood establishment that are, are making these movies that end up having resonance. And, you know, it didn't make much money. In fact, it lost money at the box office. I think the total take was around 10 or 12 million and it cost 18 something million to make, but it's become this huge cult hit. I mean, even before, I think before it was on Criterion, it was certainly something that was kind of passed around on VHS and on DVD and, you know, people. <laughs> passed around. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, I think it was something that people kind of talked to each other about, like, have you seen this crazy movie? Um, and I think that that's the kind of life that this movie is destined to in a lot of ways. So it's interesting. I think it has influenced a lot of people, but it's one that you might not expect to be on the Criterion Collection. If you think of Criterion as like this artsy, you know, some people think of it as like artsy and pretentious, but this is a proof that it's not right. The Criterion Collection is for those films or those filmmakers that maybe need more recognition or have had that influence in less conventional ways. And I think this is a great example of that. It was stuck in uh, development hell for quite some time, like you said. And I think ultimately, though, they landed on the great team. I think Depp and his weirdness is great for it. Vignesar Toto does good in his part. He does tend to pick, I think, odd things to do. And Gilliam, I mean, is just kind of perfect for this type of thing. I can't. I know uh, other directors that at least I've seen rumored or maybe were confirmed to have tried to make it were Martin Scorsese and Oliver Stone. Mm-hmm. Which, I don't know, maybe I could see kind of Oliver Stone doing it, but I don't know. Martin Scorsese, both of them just see Ill, seem ill-suited for that. I really can't see Martin Scorsese doing this. I mean, obviously, they would be very different films, especially Martin Scorsese. I mean, yeah. it would be I very, very different. It. Yeah, I don't think... Of the films I've seen, I haven't seen of his. I haven't seen any, him do anything nearly as weird as what this would really require. So I can't imagine that working out terribly well. I think Gilliam really was the best fit for that, and I'm surprised it actually started with somebody else besides Gilliam. It seems like something he would have been the one to jumpstart the idea of doing. But it's kind of a perfect me- melting pot of of talents that, and kind of a great time for that to kind of go into it. I think having a bit of perspective on the 60s and 70s is probably the better time to do it as opposed to doing it when you're kind of freshly out of it or still kind of in it. So I think it all turned out for the best. And um, I think, you know, if people are worried about going to I think just just get into it. I mean, it is, yeah, it is very strange, but you might be surprised how much you like it. You may hate it, but it is kind of be kind of, uh, it's certainly not going to be everybody's cup of tea, but it is interesting and kind of surprisingly fun if maybe 
again, sometimes a bit hard to watch in certain respects in terms of how hard these two guys are living their lives and uh, the uh, maybe morally wrong things that they're doing at certain points. I mean, I'm probably going to pick this up at some point, maybe not right away, but uh, yeah, I definitely will go back to this, which I didn't think I was going to going into this. So I am happy for this chance to finally uh, watch this. I watched, this was not the time I thought I was going to be watching it, but I think it turned out to be a good time. Well, I'm so glad that you liked it because, you know, for somebody to come at it, you know, after its release and after you've heard all the lore about it, I'm sure is different from my experience going into it, having no idea what to expect. But I'm really glad that you liked it. And I'm also glad that when I rewatched it, because it had been probably a, a few years for sure, I used to watch it religiously. I watched it. <laughs> Watched in college, and I was so glad that it held up and that I still loved it, maybe for slightly different reasons now, because Depp has also become one of those people that is a little uncomfortable to talk about at times, unfortunately. But, you know, this movie really does hold up to scrutiny of 2020, in my opinion, and I think has some great insights. Uh, I also have to commend the many, many cameos that are in this movie that just make it super fun. So mm-hmm. you get to see Toby McGuire as a hitchhiker. God damn, I've never rode in a convertible before! Is that right? Well, I guess you're about ready then, aren't you? We're your friends. We're not like the others, man. Really? No more of that talk or I'll put the fucking leeches on you, understand? <laughs> get in. Get to see, of all people, Gary Busey as a <laughs> cop. How far is Baker? I was sort of hoping to, uh, I don't know, stop there for lunch. Not in my jurisdiction. City limits in 2.2 miles beyond the rest area. Can you make it that far? I'll try. Look at me in the eyes. Everything all right? May I have a little kiss before you go? I'm very lonely here. Cameron Diaz makes an appearance. What class are you in? Class? The fuck do you mean? What do you ride? <coughs> See, we're here getting a little footage on the race for a television series. <laughs> I thought maybe um we could use you. There's just a whole lineup of random people that you aren't expecting to see that pop up in this movie that really make it fun. And then the set design. I mean, again, you know, Terry Gilliam does not shy away from doing things in a really impressive visual way. And this movie really does a great job of recreating Vegas in the 60s, 70s. Some of that was achieved through rear projection. Some of it was achieved through rebuilding things. The scene where Depp is hallucinating lizards in the Mm -hmm. lobby, all the people being lizards, they were supposed to have like 45 different lizard suits and they actually only had like I don't know, 12 or 15 or something like that is what I read. So he had to really get some ingenuity going as he shot that scene to make all the crowds of people look like lizards, but it worked out. There's some really great physical comedic performances but that are sort of enhanced, I think, by the surroundings. One of them is at a hotel that's based on Circus Circus. It's not Circus Circus. I can't remember what it's called in the movie, but it's like a clown slash circus theme of the hotel and there's a bar that actually is on a merry-go-round a carousel (laughs) the the bar is going one way and the people in the seats are going the other way and these two nincompoops like get stuck on there and can't figure out how to get off and it just adds to the hilarity because they're drunk high and also spinning in circles and it's just hilarious so there's just a lot of great moments like that um, Vegas is also just like a naturally strange place on its own, even without any sort of substances. So to set this 
in yeah. such an artificially weird atmosphere, I think really adds to it. So just a lot of things kind of coming together to make this such a great movie. Yeah, and I think yeah. the Thompson analog in the film uh, does say that, I think even fairly early on, he realizes that uh, Vegas may not have been the best place to do all these drugs. I right. Mean, it really doesn't really suit itself to that sort of thing. Because like you said, it's kind of weird on its own. And uh, the film, as should be mentioned, also has a really great soundtrack. Um, I watched yes. it with my wife, and she didn't hate the film, but she kind of disliked it, the film. And like aspects of it, one of the aspects she did like a lot was the soundtrack. It has a lot of greats from Tom Jones. Well, she's all you'd ever want. She's the kind I'd like to flaunt and take to dinner. But she always knows her place. She's got style, she's got grace. She's a winner. Uh, well, I don't think Debbie Reynolds sings in it, but just a lot of great 60s, 70s bits of music in there. Jefferson's Airplane. I think maybe some Jimi Hendrix guitar solo stuff. Yeah. Um, so it's really, so if you don't like it, maybe just buy the soundtrack for the film. It's really good. Yeah, it's uh, a killer soundtrack for sure. But yeah, this is great. some great cameos, great soundtrack, great period stuff. Um, some great use of rear projection because rear projection is obviously rear projection and fake as heck. But considering <laughs> how weird the film is, I think it really... Uh, I mean, he probably could have done something that was more realistic, but doing a rear projection just meshes with this kind of drug trip that they're on. So I think all that works. And then there's some stuff in there that, you know, this film would be really hard to to understand, like what would be mistakes and what were stuff that was intentionally made different because it's trying to create a weird tone. Like when the Hunter S. Thompson analog is driving away from Vegas before he goes back to it, um, he, uh, he's being chased by Gary Busey in a, cop car and when he's looking in the rear view mirror i could be wrong but it's almost like gary the cop car is on the opposite side when he's looking in the mirror of where it should be then when they're doing long shots it's on the other side yeah it's one of those scenes where yeah is that intentional or is that a mistake so if you know if terry Gillen made mistakes it kind of the weirdness it of the film worked. yeah it matches with the film so it kind of is yeah. thankful in that regard. I just want to say this movie, at least to me, uh, from the ages of 19 to 25, super quotable. I can't tell you how oh. many times I've said... Let's get down to brass tacks here. How much for the ape? Or... We can't stop here. This is bad country. Or any number of other things that he says in this movie. So if you've heard any of those things out of context, then watching this film, you'll be like, that's where that came oh. from. Um, it should be mentioned in terms of funny things, in terms of not... I don't think this line is really quoted much, if at all, from what I know. I know, like, stuff from We're in Backcountry and all that stuff are quoted a lot. But um, there, one cameo I will mention, I won't mention where it is. There is a Hunter S. Thompson cameo in the film, which I would see, see if you could spot it, but I think it's fairly obvious. That is hilarious uh, <laughs> in how uh, they do it. So I won't ruin that gag for you, but it is probably one the 
I think maybe the funniest part in the movie, <laughs> how they work the real Hunter S. Thompson into it. So um, be lo- on the lookout for that. I think it's just a great moment, and I think from what I know of Hunter S. Thompson, very Hunter S. Thompson of getting himself into the movie. I also love the uh, tiny Harry Dean Stanton cameo, where basically the only line he has is. I mean, he did, uh, my wife was looking up, he did an, uh, I don't think it was like an audiobook or an adapted audio play of the book before this movie where he was the narrator and he was doing everything. So he had experience with Fear and Loathing even before this. So I don't know if that's why he's necessary. he's in the movie, but it kind of fits with that. I was going to ask you, have you seen where Buffalo Rome, which is where Bill Murray plays Hunter S. Thompson? I was just about to ask you that. Uh, I have not. I was. Look, I found out about the about that film just last night when I was looking stuff up about uh, this film. And I have not. I've looked up some images of it to see kind of what it looked like briefly. I know it stars him and um, it was, I think, 1980 film. It starred yep. him and um, Peter, Peter Boyle. Peter Boyle. And it talks about uh, him covering, uh, I think it's, I don't think he's even playing an analog and I think he is just Hunter no, S. Thompson. Just Thompson. Yeah. yeah. And he's covering a story, a uh, court case or something, I think. And mm-hmm. uh, I've heard the film is not terribly good as a whole but that bill murray is good in it um i could see bill murray being suited for that not maybe as well as uh depp is because depp is better at i think disappearing into parts and i would feel i mean you can tell me if you've seen it but i feel like bill murray would still be very much bill murray just maybe a slightly weirder one yeah so i did see this movie albeit after i'd seen fear and loathing so in my mind you know johnny depp will always be hunter's thompson but I liked it. I didn't love it. And it's a much more serious movie by comparison. I guess anything would be. But it plays a lot straighter. And Mm -hmm. I think given the material and given who Thompson was, I think it just makes more sense to go the zany route. But if you're looking for a little bit more of a down-to-earth portrayal, um, it's, it's definitely not a bad performance by Murray. And it is interesting. You know, it's it is talking about some of the other, like, social things that were going on at that time around uh, drugs, around race. So there are certainly some interesting things in there, but Fear and Loathing to me is definitely the better movie. However, the music in Where Buffalo Rome is by Neil Young, and there are some really great songs in it. So if you're a Neil Young fan, that's another reason to seek this one out. All right, so as this episode is coming out in one of the last weeks of June, which I can't believe, we are counting down the days to the Barnes & Noble Criterion sale, which happens twice a year in July and in November, and I hope it always exists, um, hmm. where you can get Criterion films for 50% off. So I know I always have a list leading up to this that's way too long, and then I end up buying either stuff that's not on the list or... <laughs> Walking into the store and maybe they don't have what I was looking for, so I get something else. But I'm always curious to know what is on your Criterion wish list. What are you going to pick up this year? I'll tell you stuff I would like to buy, but I'm probably not going to. The stuff about from Ozu, who we've talked about, who I would love to get. There is Failsafe, which is a kind of film that came out. It's about nuclear war that came out shortly after Doctor Strange Love that I would love to get. There's a series of films that were, I think, very influential for, Ter- for Terry Gilliam called uh the set is called the three fantastic journeys by uh carol zeman i'm probably not pronouncing that right i apologize but if you see some clips of that you can see why that's very gilliam uh, would inspire gilliam uh, especially with his python work then i would i've had 12 angry men on my list for a very 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 long time i keep saying um, that's i'm going to get that the next time 
that there's a sale and I just there's always stuff that I would rather get would love to get on the waterfront and the circus so those are stuff I would like to get so I had a list of stuff that I was going to get but I kind of threw that out the window for what I'm probably going to do because I noticed just out of happenstance I decided to I didn't know what Harold Lloyd stuff the Criterion had so I did, tried to look that stuff up, and I noticed they have four, as of right we record this, four Harold Lloyd releases, uh, The Kid Brother, The Freshman, Safety Last, and Speedy. Besides some brief clips that I've seen, documentaries and stuff, I've never actually seen a Harold Lloyd film, so with our times being the way they are, I think a nice light Harold Lloyd, some nice light Harold Lloyd films might be a good antidote for my mood. So I will probably get those. That doesn't leave me much room in terms of money to get other things, but what else I will probably get is I will either get the Paul Robinson portraits of the artist, some other collection, I think mostly silent and maybe early sound films that would talk about the black experience and stuff, which I would be really up for watching, especially with what's going on right now in terms of Black Lives Matter and all that. That I might get because of what which will announce soon. I might get the Les Blank Always for Pleasure documentary sets. He was a documentarian. It's a collection of a lot of his documentaries that he's done. But what uh, what are some of the films that you are hoping to get as of right now? Okay, so first of all, Harold Lloyd is amazing. I actually don't don't hate me like him better than Chaplin. That's he's funny. Amazing. So definitely get those. They're great. I cannot endorse them highly enough. But yes, the things that are on my list, which is extremely long, I won't bore you guys with all of them. But I definitely want to pick up Grand Budapest Hotel now that that's on Criterion. That's one of my absolute favorite Wes Anderson's. Portrait of a Lady on Fire just came out. That's another one that I I need to get. And then Allison Anders' movie Border Radio is one that I, I watched on the Criterion channel after I had seen some other Alison Anders movies, and I loved it. It's one of her early films that she did when she was actually still in film school, and I'm definitely hoping to pick that up. The Bruce Lee Collection, which I think we referenced as a recent announcement, is one that I'm eyeing, even though cost is a factor, but if I can scrape together the funds, I'm hoping to grab that. And then I'm also hoping to get some Kurosawa, because I've, I've watched some, but I haven't actually purchased a lot of it. I've watched a lot of it on the channel. So I'm hoping to get High and Low and Yojimbo, but we'll see, you know, what I end up with because he has a lot of great films, so it might be hard to choose. And um, if you have never done a Criterion sale or don't have Criterion at all and maybe want to get into it, um, we do have some recommendations for stuff that we have that we own and have seen that uh, you might want to pick up. Just kind of off the cuff, The Passion of Joan of Arc. Uh, it's a silent film that was made near the end of the silent era that is very good. Um, heavily dramatic, so be aware of that going into it, but it is very, 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 very good. We're getting into these more with another episode, but any of Guillermo del Toro's uh, three uh, Spanish-language films that he's done, Kronos, Devil's Backbone, and Pan's Labyrinth, recommend all of those. Uh, Anatomy of a Murder with Arthur Preminger film starring Jimmy Stewart is a very good, I think I've mentioned before on the podcast, is a very good uh, courtroom drama cannot recommend that film enough chaplin releases obviously a good thing a man escaped um is a good a prison jailbreak movie slow paced and maybe light on character in certain regards but still worth look see um it happened one night great romantic comedy and finally probably two films the last two sets things i would probably highlight uh, would be the Marseille Trilogy, which is a series of French comedy dramas that were made in the early to mid-30s um, that are funny and at the same time heartbreaking and uh, introspective 
and humanizing and uh, something we'll probably talk about at some point, but are great films. And then finally, um, it was there, we've talked about this on the, well, not Rosalie and I, but before she joined on, we our first episode of the podcast did talk about the Godzilla set that was released as Criterion's you know, 1,000th spine film. Obviously, I will give that a plug again. Very good sets. Very fun series. So, again, an expensive set to do. It's one of the more expensive ones that they've done, but certainly worth the money if you have it. Well, I hardly know where to start with recommendations, but I would say, you know, you can always go back through some of the episodes that we have done on this podcast. I'm thinking specifically right now of King of Marvin Gardens, that was a really great revelatory film for me. And I actually should probably add that to my list of things I want to pick <laughs> up. But another one that certainly would be worth getting, but stuff that we haven't necessarily addressed on this podcast. Clute is a recent addition to the Criterion Collection, and it's a great 70s sort of paranoid thriller. Really loved it and highly recommend it. Lots of great special features on that one. The Jacques Demy collection, which has some really great musicals, um, French films. And if you enjoyed movies like La La Land, it's definitely worth going back and seeing, besides Singing in the Rain, what influenced that movie. And um, I think you'll be happily pleased with some of the performances there, especially Young Girls of Rochefort and Umbrellas of Cherbourg are both really great from that collection. A more recent musical is called The Lure. It's a Romanian film about mermaids who are joining a punk band in the 80s, and it gets a little violent unexpectedly. That's one of the more recent movies I saw that I was just blown away, and I was so excited when Criterion released it. And then uh, you mentioned The Man Escaped. I actually really like Pickpocket, also from Brisson's films. And like you said, it's not necessarily a fast-paced movie, but that style of uh, neorealism and just following a person who is perhaps on the wrong side of the law is super interesting. And then another purchase that I really would recommend is Badlands, the first Terrence Malick film. Absolutely gorgeously shot. The remastering on Criterion is phenomenal, and it's a movie that was kind of tough to find before Criterion put it out. So I definitely recommend that. And then if you haven't picked up the Before trilogy, Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, Before Midnight from Richard Linklater, that's a fantastic addition to any collection. So lots more I could recommend, but those are some that I would say to get started. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode of 25 Years Later's the Criterion Collectors. We certainly appreciate um, having you join us for this and would love to hear from you about what your first Criterion Collection was. Next month in July, we're going to be talking about documentaries. If you want to know which documentaries, you're going to have to follow us on Twitter. I am Rosalie Lewis. And I am, you can find me at, uh, at Cinema Pack Rat. And we will certainly announce as soon as we make a decision on that one. And then in August, if you want to watch ahead, we're going to be covering the Coker Trilogy. And in September, we'll be talking about the Wallace Shawn Andre, Andre Gregory. I almost said Andre the Giant, but <laughs> that's the Princess Bride, also in the Criterion Collection. But no, the Wallace Shawn Andre uh, Gregory Collection will be talked about in September. So if you want to get a little bit of a head start on those. And you can find more of our work online. Tim, I know you write for our parent, which is 25yearslatersite.com or on Twitter at 25ylsite. And I write for F This Movie, so feel free to follow us. Yeah, and uh, you can find stuff I write on my blog, which you can find linked in my uh, Twitter account. And I do YouTube videos, which you can also find linked on my Twitter account. 
All right. Thank you so much. And join us next time in July when we talk about documentaries on the Criterion Collectors. Thank you.